Welcome back to The Stack. This week we speak to Pilwick Fastec. Pilwick Fastec has lately completed a grant to study the feasibility of communal computing with Urbit. This turned out to be a very good thing, though Andy and I are skeptical of anything that has the word communal in the title. Every fall we drive to upstate New York to buy pumpkins and replenish our flatware supply, and every fall we end up having to fight our way out of a sex cult again. We'd quit, but you can beat neither the fall foliage nor those Oneidans for a deal on silver. Which reminds me of a story. A few years ago, I looked into buying a robot butler. A salesman brought around the latest model, which a couple of workmen liberated from a large wooden crate in the middle of my kitchen. The robot was the very image of Jeeves in chrome. Allow me to demonstrate what he can do, said the salesman. The robot prepared an elaborate French meal of several courses with all the aptness of an Escoffier. And while we enjoyed a light postprandial, the robot carted away the dishes, handily washed them, and put them to dry. I thought it absolutely marvelous, a brave new world of home leisure. But I was concerned that his chrome color would clash with my kitchenware. I turned to the salesman and said, this is all splendid, but does he come in silver? To which the salesman replied, oh no, sir. And rest assured, if he does, you can return him for a full refund and will also replace your cutlery. Ultimately, I did not elect to purchase a home robot at that time, but from first fumbling, sometimes we ripe and ripe into the fullness of an idea. Thus is Pilwick Fastech insisting that the proper way to roboticize the home is by letting an urbit run things. One major theme is not selling out your data to megacorps. Imagine Alexa, but less slutty. But first, the news. But first, first, the personal news. Yours truly, truly the truest, apologizes for the lateness of recent episodes. I was in lockdown without my equipment for much of the last month, and there's nothing more unsatisfying than being a man whose equipment is not at hand. My equipment is once again in front of me, and a good deal larger than I remember. And blacker. I'm excited to be using it on you all. With hope, I will soon pull out of China, and I can once again use my equipment all over America. And now, the other news. I think I'm done doing the news. There are now plenty of places to find Urbit News, probably the best of which is the Stack Podcast Twitter feed, at Stack underscore podcast. But now there are also such upstart crows as the Ukbar Weekly Roll-Up, Justin Murphy's podcast, and so on. They're thorough and more professional than the Stack, whereas the Stack is a sleek and powerful stallion which cannot be contained in the corral of the weekly news cycle, but must needs burst forth unbridled to harass all the fillies of the mountainside with florid prose and in enthusiastic and formidable membership. So there you go. Go get your news somewhere else. Now let's pay a bill. This episode of The Stack is sponsored by Third.Earth. Third Earth are the premier Urbit hosting service. You can sign up for $12 a month, use a planet right away with two gigabytes of S3 storage included, and after a couple of years, your planet belongs to you outright. Recently, they released the widest screen demo you've ever seen of them booting up a planet in under two minutes. Go check that out on Twitter at ThirdEarth3. That's Third Earth followed by the Arabic numeral three. And of course, go find them online at Third.Earth. And now our conversation with Pilwick Fastech. So we talk first of all about how you got uh, introduced to Urban? Well, yeah, so... I actually ended up meeting uh, a Talon rep uh, at a Samo Berja <laughs> meetup <laughs> in the Bay Area, and yeah. I had I had never heard of Urbit before that, um, and got like a Planet card and basically just came on board to check it out. Um, but I think the the thing that was really interesting to me is is one this person you know used to work at the Long Now Foundation, and so that is a, an organization I've been following for a long time. Um, 
And that's like Stuart Brand and a bunch of other people, Kevin Kelly. Um, and then the other side of it was just, I don't know, I, I've been doing a lot of work in kind of identity and privacy, AI, machine learning, like a bunch of stuff like that. And this idea of, I guess, maybe hopping off one technology curve that was at maybe its optimization point, you know, with third party, uh, third party data, client server architecture, and hopping onto something else that, you know, again, could be a big thing in the future, but could just be the seed for another big thing in the future was really interesting to me. And that that's, I think, what really drew me to Urbit. So I think I've been on the network. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to try to claim I was on here for a long time, but I, I think you know, probably a year, maybe a little bit longer. Um, and, you know, that was where I then started to get to know, like, different people. And this was before the foundation split off. Um, and so, like, getting to know Josh and um, yeah, I mean, I'm not an, I, I was an engineer at a certain point. I'm no longer an engineer. So, um, when talking about some potential work to do with them, uh, you know, my, the grant that I put together was really the first grant I think they did that didn't involve any Hoon coding. Um, and so this was really more of an exploration project and, and wanted to think about like, where could Urbit go eventually? And that's, that's where this communal computing on Urbit, uh, grant came through and we completed it. I think about a month or two at this point, um, and published a white paper about communal computing on Urbit. Um, and so, yeah, happy to talk about any of these things. Can you tell us what your background was before you started uh, the grant? Yeah, I, I guess, you know, I've, I guess a long time ago, it depends on, I, you want to go back to when I was a child or <laughs> far back do you want to go? <laughs> I, I don't know if I could tell you. Yeah. What, what, what's, well, what's relevant maybe to the question? Yeah, I, I guess like the things that would be interesting is that um, I, in kind of middle school, high school, I did a lot of stuff with computers and phones and software, um, which I guess built this belief in me that uh, we shouldn't always just agree with whatever the technology um, kind of whatever the whatever the mainstream technology is telling you about the world, it's probably not true. And, and so, you know, that's why I did a lot of stuff with, uh, you know, I used to build and sell red boxes in high school, which was a way to pretend that a quarter had been inserted into a, a, a payphone. Um, I used to work at a lab, a computer lab in college because it had some of the best printers for, you know, certain types of uh, identification. <laughs> and, uh, you know, used to actually run a bulletin board back when we still had, you know, say 2,400 to 9,600 baud modems um, around wares. And so, you know, these are all things I think that made me just wonder why should we continue to do the things that the way that major technology companies tell us to. And so, um, kind of in parallel to that, I, you know, my dad was a um, graphic designer and one of the old school ones where I was still using like exacto knives and spray adhesive and typesetters and everything like that. And it was really helping him turn that into not only digital stuff. So, you know, like early Quark Express and Adobe Illustrator work, but also eventually building out what the first web pages for a lot of his clients. And so I guess this kind of healthy disrespect for technology authority and design or creative work, I think that's probably what I would specify as, as really like a good foundation for why I think Urban like interests me so much as a project. Um, you know, went to school for engineering, basically went into non-technical roles, uh, 
but creative roles um, uh, within the technology world for a long time. And so I'd say that's kind of who I am and, and what, I, what really brought me to where I am today. Okay. And so then to get to Urbit, your grant was involved with um, basically researching the, the viability and the, the um, how to integrate Urbit into a smart home environment. Yeah. And, and when I talk about communal, communal computing, what I'm really meaning is that um, and this goes back to the days of like the 1960s uh, mainframes, where for a long time, uh, mainframes were like a single person use computer, right? You'd walk up to it, you'd shove a bunch of like cards into it, and then it would do stuff. And usually the person that it was doing stuff for would be standing in front of the machine. So you can like push them out of the way <laughs> without committing some type of like computer lab assault. And so... Um, there didn't need to be this idea of multi-user or who was in front of the device because you knew who was using the device. It was the person in front of it. Once you started to have a client-server architecture where, yeah, you'd still have the computer that was the side of, size of a room, but then you could access it from a terminal anywhere in the building, usually academic settings, you started to have to understand this concept of like who was actually taking up the processor's um, like uh, resources, and then you'd have to, in some ways, also do resource scheduling and t and time sharing and all these things, which then created the multi-user infrastructure that we know today, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, what really is, I guess, what the problem is with this is that once you start to now install, rather than just like laptops or smartphones, these things are highly personal, right? Like only one person can really use them at a time. Usually there's some amount of sharing, like you'll turn the screen to someone or something like that, but there's still this idea that it's like my laptop or my phone. Um, what happens is that once the Amazon echo came out really, and I, I think some like, you know, IOT smart home enthusiasts, DIYers before that had been dealing with this, but, but the idea of like, once the Amazon echo was something that you could have in your home. And I, I actually got the first available version, uh, the public version around that. Um, you had to then attach it to your Amazon account. And then you could start to do things like automatically, you could add things to your shopping list. But the problem was, is it was like my shopping list. But once you start living with other people, it gets very complicated, right? And, and so it's not just the idea that say my spouse can add something, but also my kids or my mother-in-law or a house cleaner or just someone that's visiting, right? And um, so I think I think that's what I mean by communal computing are these devices that are kind of in the environment that we live and um, anybody can use them. And there's this mistake that starts to happen, which I think turns into like basically it breaks some of these systems. So like I have a Google Home Hub um, in my kitchen and my kids um, know how to use it to play music right on Spotify. And what that means is that my Spotify playlists or recommendations are, are just like totally destroyed with like Minecraft music, which is a thing, <laughs> apparently. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's all like parody songs, right? Of like real songs that are Minecraft oriented. <laughs> and so like um, from that perspective, the problem there is it's taking this behavioral data from a shared device that's in a shared space and assuming it's just me. Right. right. And so, so that's what I mean by this idea, right, of, of kind of communal computing or devices. And what I think is really interesting is that when we think about how Urbit should be used in the future, right, like Urbit right now is a highly personal thing. And that's because identity is so tied to me. There's a lot of strong identity things inside of Urbit. But I think once you start to think about like the evolution of computing, there's really two directions it goes. It's either it becomes closer and closer to us, right? That's why like 
people like Meta are going after virtual reality or this idea of like Neuralink being linked into your head is that computing becomes very personal, right? It's something that gets closer and closer to my face and my brain. But then there's the other direction, which is like ambient computing, ubiquitous computing, pervasive computing, all this terminology that people use for basically like we're pushing it off into the environment, right? And so TVs, um, home assistants, uh, IoT light bulbs, like all that type of stuff ends up being in the environment. And so my argument about these these things is that like Urban is doing, I think, a really good job at identity and, and I, we can talk about this in a little bit, but like this difference between like identity and reputation, I think Urban does a really good job of separating those things and allowing like, you know, cryptographic aspects to take care of identity and then reputation to still be kind of a human domain thing. Um, the other path, though, is that like as we start to push computing into the walls of our, our homes and our offices and everywhere else, we need to do a better job of actually understanding who's using those things. And that's where I think... The identity model for Urbit doesn't exactly fit. I think there's some ways that it can fit, and that was part of the study was to really, you know, maybe long, long answer short, like the grant was really not only to understand like how could Urbit fit inside of the smart home, but how does like Urbit's identity model actually work inside of these types of communal computing experiences? And then how in some way uh, do we need to like, what is the next step to take to move us in that direction? And so that was kind of the output of this was a, you know, white paper. Um, we ended up talking to, uh, you know, I think it was officially 12 um, people that are in the urban community. So it's not a huge amount of people, but, you know, these were like 45 minute to an hour long in, uh, qualitative interviews to kind of understand how they think about identity, how they think about urban, how they think about smart home. Um, we talked to a bunch of experts, both inside of like Talon and the foundation and a bunch of other places, as well as externally. Um did a bunch of research and workshopping around some ideas and then came up with like a recommendation. And I think there's a couple different options that we can go as far as like how Urbit should be in the smart home. Um, but really the next step and the thing that we're, we're starting to like think about is for the next grant that we're getting ready to prepare is what is like a proof of concept for Urbit as like a smart home controller. Um, and so, yeah, I'll, I'll pause there for a second, but that, that's kind of like what the grant was about. So this was the first time that a grant, I think, didn't involve any home code because Honestly, like you can pay someone much better than me to do engineering nowadays. Um, right. And so I don't think you can teach like an old dog new tricks that much. Um, and so, yeah, anyways, that, that's, that's, that's what this grant was about. And I think, um, anyways, I, I found it very interesting and I'm, I'm happy to talk about the, like the results and what ended up coming out of that too. What did you find were sort of people's, I guess, vision of how yeah. uh, they see urban being used in the home? I mean, I think one of the most interesting things I found was the split. And again, it's not like a huge N when it comes to the number of people that were involved, but right. there was this split between people that, you know, uh, thought about their identities as kind of a singular thing. And they thought about how, yes, they know that all of their data is going to third parties using IoT or smart home, but they didn't care. Right. right. And then there was another group of people. Um, that thought of their identity as kind of a fractured, multidimensional thing, um, based usually on the relationships they had. Um, and they absolutely did care where their data was going. And kind of a hypothesis on this is that what really matters between these two different groups is that it's kind of like stage of life and who they're living with. And so the, dif the difference that I started to see, or at least a pattern, and, and more research needs to go into this, absolutely, but, but like... Once you have more of these like interrelationships with people, especially those that live in your home, so like a spouse or children or a mother-in-law, intergenerational households, 
um, whatever that is, when, once you start to have like a split in your identity, you actually want to have something different than say your home and work identity or your home, work and social identity. And there's a bunch of fracturing and kind of splitting that happens there. But before that point, you're actually okay with having one identity. And so those people would usually say that like their urban identity ideally would be the identity that they you know, have a driver's license with, they pay taxes, <laughs> they're online, they do all this stuff, right? The moment that people start to worry about other people in their lives, they have tended to want it to have like an isolation of these different things. And, and by the way, this actually jives really well with how people think about, you know, maybe circling back to like reputation is that people think about reputation based on kind of the relationship with other people. And so that's why I think Urbit's really interesting is that in each community, you know, I have an identifier, which is like my P-pad or my, my sigil, right? But then beyond that, there's no reputation that's encoded, right? It's up to the other humans that are in that, that community that make a decision about my reputation. And the same thing happens inside of the household, even more kind of nuanced and based on norms, which is that, you know, we're constantly negotiating relationships with people that we live with, right? And there's new norms that are created. And so like an example I'll give is that in some ways, it's completely okay that like, you know, a really young child will just like burst into a bedroom, <laughs> right? Like, like our bedroom while we're sleeping. But if they get older, like there's a certain point where that norm is no longer the case, mm. right? And so the fact that when we start to now say codify or encode this type of reputation information, I think that's where a lot of these devices go wrong. Um, and so anyways, that, that I thought was like one of the more interesting things um, that was like backed up. You know, there's a lot of like research about reputation and identity fracturing from like the standpoint of inter um, interrelationship type of thing. And so that was kind of backed up by this study um, or the research that we did. And then the other thing is that um, I think we just we were able to see that people do want to control the flow of their information and they see Urbit as the way to do that. Right. Like I get to decide whether I share my identity um, with a particular community. And I think long-term, they want to be able to hold on to that capability when it comes to all of the data that's being created inside their smart home through like video cameras, sensors, even like a light bulb being on or off, right? Um, and so those those are some of the interesting things that I think really came out of this. Um, there's, Of course, there's like a whole report about how we, we got to these kind of synthesis points and everything. But um, I think those are kind of the, the, main, the main important ones. What did you so you you say that you had um, two two groups I guess those who are really into their own personal identity and those who had uh, yeah. their their shared identity with their family did, did these I, I assume these split along the lines of like the twenty four year old <laughs> coder versus uh, us old guys with two or three kids that's right yeah I think that again I I don't think it's enough information to really like you know. Uh, the the coat you know the the bro coder versus like the fan you know the the old tooth inside of the technology world and uh, you know everybody that was in the study by the way was male right <laughs> so right. like there there is like a there is a a dude kind of uh, bias inside of this data but I think there is in, inside of Urban today anyways let's not feel that we have to be subtle on this podcast <laughs> fair enough there's, there's no shade, there's no shades of gray <laughs> whatever whatever we but, come up but with even even within <laughs> within men there's a there's a, a dialectic right there's there's the dude bro type. <laughs> i wish which, which I, this is not the podcast dudes. this is not the podcast i was expecting to be on but uh anyways um yeah I, I mean to your point right like i think there was something about this once you start to have 
someone else that you live with, right? Once you start to have children that you have to worry about in some way, I think there is this difference. And so I think that's why, I don't know, there's something interesting about Urbit when it comes to like, once you start setting up all this stuff inside of your home, I think there is like a drive to deal with privacy, right? There are some people that would talk about how they actually, once they had a, a kid and they went to go look for like a baby monitor, right? A lot of baby monitors are are connected. Some of them are over radio waves. There's a bunch of different options that are out there. And so um, anyways, like it, that was something where they really took pause. And they, in some case, like in a couple cases, they ended up like disabling their entire smart home stuff because they just didn't feel like they could trust it anymore. Um, so I think, I think there's something interesting about like the future of Urbit in the smart home is that it helps you control the flow of the information, which, which goes back to a lot of privacy frameworks like contextual integrity by Nissenbaum and stuff like that. Like, I think these are important concepts when it comes to like privacy frameworks. So, um, yeah. How do you see if, if we're using a, an, an Urbit to, uh, run I, the heart, the smart home, what, like just as a first kind of, um, uh, ballpark, idea how do you see the the structure of of uh the future home with the urbit running the devices yeah yeah i think so what i guess i hypothesize is that there's really three main ways that you could have urbit in, in the smart home so the mm-hmm. first one that i think is is seems most obvious at least is that um that every device inside your smart home runs urbit right so like the smart light bulb on the microcontroller has like a small footprint urbit that you know, in some way gets connected maybe through like a moon identity to your planet identity. There's some amount of control that ends up going on there. Um, and that's, that's one way it could work. Right. Um, another one, which I think is a bit more common is this idea of like a hub or controller inside the home, um, which by the way, could be like an Amazon echo or a Google home hub. They help you control other smart devices because those smart devices usually do not have interfaces, right? So like a light bulb, doesn't come with a switch. You have to hook it up to either a switch or one of these other controllers or hubs. And so I think like that's that's another one that the Urbit could be like the hub or the controller. When it comes down to like control of information, though, I actually think that maybe the end goal for Urbit um, is to become the router for the home, right? And that's because it can decide which devices have the ability or right to actually communicate externally, and it can decide to which information to store, which ones not to. And there was like a kind of an argument inside of the communal computing community just about like who deserves privacy and who makes privacy choices, right? And and so is it the owner of the home? Um, and actually this last time I was at, a, I went to this um, internet identity workshop, um, which is like, you know, if you think Urbit people are kind of nerdy, like, and, and weird, this is like, the self-sovereign identity people online. And so they've been doing yeah. this work for a long time. <laughs> like they're, that's like niche, right? Um, but it's really interesting. And so I, I did a talk there um, about like, you know, is the uh, urban, is like the smart home, is it a, a, a democracy, a co-op or a dictatorship? And I well, think my we get in. A dictatorship. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, and honestly, it, it is for most people, right? Yeah. Like, there's one person who has all the accounts. They're logged into everything, <laughs> and that's it, right? right. Um, but the question becomes like, and this is where there was an argument where I, I'm definitely more on the privacy centric kind of stance. But this idea mm-hmm. of like the UPS person that comes to deliver your package, should you be allowed to capture their likeness? And I think once we start getting into this realm of like everybody has a computer on their face, right? Um, 
there's a very interesting problem which comes up. And this is where our contextual integrity comes in, which is that we have expectations about privacy um, that are not as simple as the dichotomy between public and private. And so what I mean by that is that I could be walking down the street, right, a public street, but I'm all by myself. And I would assume that, you know, if I pick my nose or take a leak or something like that, that it's still private, even though I'm in a public space. And the reason why I believe that is because I don't see anybody else's eyes, right? Right. And so what I actually care about is I care about like, one, there's a context for the norms that I, I expect, right? There's who's like the subject of something, who's sending the information, who's receiving it. And then this idea of like, how does that change, right? And so uh, like in the book, Privacy in Context, which is a great book about privacy, if people want to read up on this this model in more depth, um, is like Google uh, Street View, right? So Google Street View makes a lot of sense that if someone's just walking down my street, they can see the front of my house, right? The problem becomes that when um, my expectations were that just people that I can see outside my front door or people that are walking by, which is a much more limited population, can see my front front door or the front of my house. That's very different when literally anybody in the world can just log on to a website and now see it because it's violated this norm of who is actually receiving this information, right? Um, so I think that's what's important here. And, and so anyways, my argument is that like the UPS driver, you know, if they saw you sitting out on your porch, right, they would make eye contact. They'd probably say hi. They would drop off your package. You would say thank you or something like that. <laughs> and there would be like some pleasant, but, the, but that's like a norm because there's an expectation about you're there. But the moment that like, you know, I think we started to see these like compilations of videos where people leave notes that are like, please dance when delivering the package. And it's just like, it's horrible, in my opinion. <laughs> but like, you know, like that type of thing, I actually think that we should take the default stance that most people don't want to be recorded, right? And I think the maybe steel manning the opposite case is that well, what happens in the case of like crime, or, you know, something bad happens, and I want to figure out who it was, right? I think there are things when we start talking about this like idea of multi-sig and circular signatures and, and things like that where, you know, there's probably someone you trust to help deal with problems in the neighborhood and probably not for everybody it's police, but there are other types of like, you know, could be a village elder or whatever, right? But I think there's something interesting about this idea of, you know, how do we actually make decisions about privacy for other people is, is my main point, right? And I were, think, you, yeah. were, were you around for Gurgle? Gurgle? What's that? So, yeah, that was uh, kind of the first major controversy, but somebody um, basically, uh, you know, archived a lot of chats on Urbit. This would have been, I mean, uh, this was more, more, well, more than a year ago. Um, okay. I, and, I, I was not familiar and, with this. Tell me about it. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, made it, made it searchable, right? Um, okay. And yeah. it was, uh, you know, I think like you said, I mean, it, there, um, these were public groups. Yeah. But the expectation was that yes. only those people that were there should ever really be able to see them. And it was, a tr right. it was you know, trivially easy to archive and everything like that. Um, and I th but I think that one of the things that really chopped people was that it was a hooner who did it. You know, it was somebody that was in the community, uh, a small community at that time, um, yeah. who had done it. Yeah. Wait, yeah, and you know, I, I want to add something there. That's not the only reason that people lost their minds. I, I mean, because I went crazy over this. Uh, the other thing was that – so, to, to, to make this feasible, what you have to do is uh, put park a moon in somebody's chat, right? 
And that moon is uh, just like bots work. That moon is is uh, receiving messages and just archiving everything, right? And what happened was that when people learned that someone was doing this, they went private with their groups because they didn't want this done. They, no, nobody asked. They just they just stuck a moon in there. And then when they went private, that person did not proactively or after people asked remove the moon from the chats and so people we had to go figure out which moon it was and start kicking them out of our chats and i i mean i even on twitter asked whoever it was to you know let us know which moon it was and they got really defensive and then said we were we were being very threatening or whatever <laughs> uh i mean which we were because <laughs> i i threatened murder no this this didn't happen but uh yeah uh so so yeah. that was that was the thing and they they the real problem was that they broke community norms mm -hmm. and i think yes. that and uh i'm pretty sure that it was probably it was probably galen or something you know just moonlighting <laughs> trying to trying to toughen us up or something uh yeah i, yeah, I mean this this is this is related to some of the research like in some of the interviews right this this concept of who should be recorded right like the up for some people the UPS driver absolutely should be recorded in their full likeness. I should be able to do that. It's my house. But then the moment that you start talking about, like, I have a dinner party over, right? Mm -hmm. And um, the person, the people that are over there, I don't, you know, maybe one of them gets drunk. And then, you know, what happens to that information, right, is, is really interesting and gets kind of tricky. Because if there's someone who's a blabbermouth that's in this community that comes over to that dinner party and starts talking shit about people everywhere, like they're not going to be invited to the dinner party anymore because they're violating the norm of that, you know, maybe that this is like a private gathering. Right. Um, and so I think this is, this is why I think like that type of thing, like contextual integrity. And to your point, there was a norm that was violated. The receiver of this information was not the rest of the community. It was a bot. Right. And so, Anyways, I think there's something really interesting about this, especially in the home, because, you know, like the relationship that I have with my wife is constantly being, you know, it's not constantly being renegotiated, but like, <laughs> I don't mean to make that sound like a really bad thing, but like the norms that we have change over time. And it's not just based on what we say to each other, but how we react to each other, you know, body language, a bunch of things like that. And so I guess my only point when we talk about like reputation inside of the urban sphere, at least my recommendation to like Ur to urban people and, and in general is that we don't do this thing, which is codifying reputation information. Because I think once you start to do that and you do it at scale, you start to get a lot of the problems that you'll see in very large communities. Um, and that's where, yeah. So, so that's why I think there's something interesting about how do we allow humans to do what's, what they do best, which is kind of deciding the mental map, right? Like that's something referred to in, uh, like psychology around theory of mind. And there's a lot of work inside of like the AI and machine learning world about how do we start to build better theory of mind. And, and, and if you're not familiar with theory of mind, theory of mind is essentially like, I know what this other person is thinking in this situation. And so what they've done and actually Dunbar's number, which is a bunch of different numbers, but Dunbar's like most well-known number, which is like 150, is because supposedly we can keep about 150 models of other people's brains inside of our brain. Right. And there's some correlation that's been found with like brain size and the ability to like a certain part of the brain size and the ability to hold these and say, like, you know, testing this in other types of monkeys and, and um, primates. And, you know, it's really interesting because 
uh, what this means is like, are you like if you're able to finish someone else's sentence, you've built a model about them. Now, what's interesting is that there's also this issue that we tend to personify machines a lot of the time in this way. So that's why there are some people that like name their Roomba, right? I, and this is not something that's like brand new. There are people that start to build models about other objects, right? And there's a bunch of work that Dan Norman's done around like, um, you know, objects and the way that they're kind of cognitive tools in some way. And so I don't know how deep you want to get into this particular subject, but I think it's very fascinating to talk about how do we build relationships online tends to be through this idea that we're, we're building models of other people. And I, I would argue that almost any technology is really just about intermediating other humans. And so I think there's something that's why I think these this idea of like norms and then expectations about privacy are really important and powerful when we think about these these types of things. So you ended up coming to the conclusion that that we should not have a uh, codified reputation system at all. Or I mean, that, yeah, I would say probably what not. Extent, is right? that true? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think like there's something interesting about this um, from the standpoint of uh, I guess it depends on the cost that's involved in joining communities, mm-hmm. right? Because one of the things I did hear from a lot of these these people in the study was that, you know, they don't remember ever getting spam um, through the Urbit community. And, of course, you know, I mean, like the size of the, the Urbit kind of network is probably part of this. But but also it's like, you know, to get a planet, it's it's a non-trivial amount of money. Right. right? And and to then, like, abuse that planet and then get, like, blocked, right? And, and there's mechanisms even at the star level to, like, stop other stars <laughs> from communicating with you again. Um, or, or, or galaxies, right? Even galaxies can block each other, basically. Um, I think there's something interesting about that fact. And so that's why, like, you know, spam, say, th- through email, like, a majority of the email that you get, like, the email you get is something, I can't remember what the exact statistic was, but it was, like, less than 5% of the actual email sent, right? Because right. the majority of it is just spam because it's free almost. Um, there are a bunch of different things like there are even reputational systems. So I'd say that like in some cases, reputational systems try to step in when there's less of a cost to l- losing a relationship or an identity. I would say because of the way that Urbit is when it comes to the, the fact that address sp- space is limited and that makes it, you know, I think I worry about the speculative side of that. But but I think like the idea of how this actually creates valuable identities in some way, um, but also still allows for anonymous identities. Um, and there's an interesting thing that came up in the discussions around this, like the difference between a comet and like, say, a star is that people trust stars a lot more, right? Because they cost a lot more and they trust comets almost not at all. And so I think there's a lot of kind of functions of identity when it comes to how you join a community. And sometimes you want to be anonymous when you join a community, right? Like, when people first get started in communities, and there's there's a great blog post, I I'm, I'm, can't remember exactly, but it's like, um, it's basically about how like scenes like and mostly focused on like music scenes and how they go through this kind of um, evolution over time. So there's like the hardcore members, um, there's people that kind of like experiment and so they'll show up at a show, but they don't know anybody. So they don't talk to anybody, but they're almost like anonymous at that show. But then there's a certain point where the people that want to make money out of the scene or um, end up being kind of like, you know, once people start selling out and get things get popular, there's the people that are not really like established as much. There's this cycle that starts to happen. And so, you know, I think, I think there's something that's interesting about if we draw a parallel to the way that people join communities inside of like Urbit, you know, I don't have to join with my full identity. Right. And, you know, anyways, I would just say that 
in the case of like living in a home with someone else, though, those things don't apply quite in the same way. Now, there are a bunch of cases where, you know, people that have uh, done like basically domestic abuse, even though they moved out from a house through the smart home devices. And so there's there's actually a whole group in Texas that will, you know, devote hours of time to help people that that have like basically have broken up with someone else to reset their home. And it takes hours because not only do you have to reset like the Wi-Fi, the router, you have to like change all of the subscriptions, you have to change logins for all the different devices. And it's usually over a bunch of different like providers. Um, and this may be related just as like a bridge to the next topic, which is like maintenance in general. And so, one Well, they've the probably also sewed uh, Apple tag into your clothes. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's another crazy example of like where they did not think about the privacy implications, right? Um, if you're an Apple user, you'll, you'll see a notification that says, hey, this tag has been following you around for a while. <laughs> if you're an Android user, you have to like download an app, right? Mm. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, it, it, there's some interesting problems with all this stuff. And this is maybe getting to the point that like there are ways to make decisions or, or like, you know, and I think that's why I think Urban's so interesting is this idea of like principal decisions about way you build something. Um, and that can help avoid a lot of problems that I think come up if you do not make those types of principal decisions. I'm one of those people that thinks that technology, while could be considered kind of, you know, it's up to the people to use them correctly. There's some technologies that are made to be used in a bad way rather than a good way. Um, so I, that's why I, I guess I'm also attracted to Urbit is a lot of the principles that Urbit is built on feel like very privacy centric, you know, identity centric in a good way, um, allowing me to keep my data as much as possible. Those are all reasons why I think it's interesting. But and then the maintenance thing is interesting too. Like just getting back to that, right? Like how we how they do like OTA updates, and I'm you know it's up to a galaxy to decide their policies around that. Um, a bunch of things around <clears throat> kind of how apps are installed. There's a lot of work to do there, and, and same thing with the security, right? Like there's a bunch of work to still to do, but I think it's on the pathway to that. You know, maintenance is was one of the things where if people moved houses and they just got tired of like resetting their password with that light bulb manufacturer, they just didn't install them again. <laughs> and so they they or or they would install them and they wouldn't use them, right? Like they would just be dead. And so, anyways, there's there's a bunch of issues around maintenance that I think come up in the smart home as well that I think Urban, you know, takes an interesting stance with probably. Yeah, this is this is you can see a a a really um great use case here for, for I don't know it, it's a centralization but on a on a sort of individual level because there's a couple of things you're talking about one of which is that that um, you you have 500 services that if you let's say you break it off with somebody you've now got to you've got to go change the yeah. the IDs and passwords for and then there's also the the uh, physical things in your home, like the the light bulb password that you need to change. But you can actually uh, you can see a case for having your personal, I guess, orbit tied to you or to your home be sort of like the centralized hub where you uh, that that mediates all of these other services for you that you can yeah. easily then right. just at the orbit layer. Uh, change all the passwords or or deny services or whatever. That's right. Yeah, and I, I think that's the thing that seemed to come up a lot in the wish list of, of people that we we interviewed. Um, I think it is to take Urbit to be eventually the router for the home and the storage area and a bunch of things like that. 
Right. Because then, to your point, I can decide, you know, I'm going to install this new light bulb, but it requires me to, like, use a third-party service. I, I can know that, right? Like, like one of the actual uh, comments from someone was, you know, I don't know who in China is driving around <laughs> my, my, my vacuum cleaner every night. Right. And so right. like, uh, they, uh, it's me, by the way. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I'm sitting here in uh, China, just driving <laughs> randomly. They have a website where you can choose. It's all through Twitch. It's like, it's, where should we clean? Basically. It's competitive by the way. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's why, that's why it targets dog poop so much. Right. Is, yeah. Uh, is you, you want to make art at, at a person's home basically. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I mean, I think there's there's like a bunch of those feelings came out of these people um, when talking about kind of their belief about how they they keep data. You know, they didn't really know very much about like the self sovereign identity community, distributed identifiers, things like that. But but that's okay because I think like the the basics around this type of thing ends up being really focused on like privacy, control of data. Um, ability to make decisions about technology without just like it being de defaulted, right? I think this idea of like opt-in versus opt-out is a really key component to that. Um, and maybe it gets to the, you know, one of the things that's interesting about Urbit is because we, because Urbit as a community is kind of, it's so peer-to-peer, -peer, it's hard to know. Like there's no kind of engagement loop. And I would argue that for the home, you actually don't want engagement loops, <laughs> right? You don't, you don't want to be provoked to using a device more than you need to. And and this is where I've, I've you know, I've definitely seen references. There's like a whole Urbit blog post about like calm technology. Um, and I think it's in some of the documentation as well. But, but you know, a concept that came out of Xerox Park in the 80s and um, O'Reilly did a book in like the early, I think it was like the mid to late 2000s about just, you know, technology should be there as something that you can use when you want to, but it doesn't like try to get you to use it. And I, I think that's ideal for the home is you want technology to fade in the background, right? You, you want it to only, you want to deal with it when you have to. And so anyways, I, I've been doing like a lot of this kind of thought, kind of just thinking through like, what would the ideal video doorbell be, right? And, and how would it collect data? How would it notify you of different things? Like one of the things that was a complaint from a lot of people is that like their video cameras, they get in, they get notified all the time of squirrels running through their yard. <laughs> and so like um, this idea of, of just like having something that, that takes a step back and maybe, you know, doesn't really bother you as much is, is I think an ideal thing for a house because it should be about the people connecting together inside the home. A bunch of interesting problems that come up between people that like, how should a, like a device um, be part of like a, a relationship in the home is a really interesting one or how should it help intermediate between people, right? So, uh, you know, I use the example of a picture frame where I have one in my household, my mom has one in hers, and she lives, you know, far away from where I am, and I control the, the stream of pictures that are there. And it's ideal for me to control that picture, my picture stream, because she can see new pictures of the grandkids whenever I want her to. But it doesn't like automatically make choices about the feed of data that's being added in there because like I wouldn't want like memories from college <laughs> suddenly showing up on our picture <laughs> frame, right? Um, and things like that. So again, we're getting back to like the the norms and the context around this that that is really important for privacy. Yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to uh, I'm trying to think of what I want. Uh, like uh, the I can say that the the Urbit that we had maybe a few months ago was too calm in the sense that 
Um, we didn't have notifications. So I know that notifications are, are a requirement for me at least. And that's to say, excuse me, I, I know that notifications are a, are a necessary thing for me at least um, because the fact that we didn't have them caused me not to use it as much. Uh, yeah. Because I need to know when people are talking to me, right? And so tel Telegram delivered that or Discord or whatever, right? Um, and so I, I, I think that personally, a minimum amount of being harassed by my technology is that it, it acts like a, um, a, a not too, um, not too ready assistant, um, such that it's, it's, it's letting me know that, you know, when other important people in my life are trying to talk to me, but otherwise, yeah. otherwise never bothers me and 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 otherwise is just there yeah. when i want it right well that's where i think some simple rules help right to to do this but i mean for my day job i've turned off all email and like messaging notifications um for my my regular phone and um honestly i think it's it's better because of that um even things like do not disturb, say on the iPhone, right? Like they do allow for contacts to break through and actually ring if they call. I think it's like two or three times. Right. So I think what you're, what you're talking about is again, how do we do a better job of understanding the norm, like the context that's happening here, like an emergency, right? Should break through. Um, I think there's something interesting though, like, you know, how do we deal with rituals in the way that we are in a, like our daily lives? Um, the concept of that I used, you know, used to have like a paper delivered in the morning and then you'd sit there and like read the paper on either your commute or at home while drinking coffee or whatever, you know, the atomic lifestyle you wanted to have at that point. Um, you would, you would have a ritual that was related to these things. I think with 24 seven notification though, I think it, it, it breaks a lot of this and it, it puts us into the space, at least the argument that I would make for this, right? And the reason why I would, I would, I would say that we want calmer technology, not more notifying technology is it basically turns every device into a slot machine. And that's, I think the part that, that at least based on the principles I've seen that urban has been created around is that we don't want to create more slot machines, right? And, and the key of a slot machine is essentially that you do a bunch of activity and then there's kind of almost randomized, but ever escalating um, kind of rewards. And in our cases, when it comes to, say, a community, it could be engagement, right? Um, so I, I think this is like, there's something that humans need to get better about. There, There is real, like, I think, addiction to technology in some ways. I think it helps us from the standpoint of being reminded to like get back to someone, I think is a helpful notification, right? Like if you just forgot or whatever, I think that's something that's good in, inside of email is to be notified of that. or. Um, you know, yeah, being reminded about that type of stuff is an example of something that I think is like a valuable notification. Now, <clears throat> how it happens, I think, is the key question, right? Does it like make your phone beep? Or in the case of like, say, something like Gmail, it shows up as like, hey, you got this email three days ago. Do you want to reply? Um, I think there, I think there's some, some real value in how do we be better at life, right? And find more meaning in life. And I think that can be very much related to this idea of how are we better in relationships with other people? Um, 
but I think there's there's a limit though, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, uh, that that's what I would say about that. But I, I get what you're saying, right? Like, I, I I'm just trying to say that I think there's like a nuanced way to do this rather than just always having notifications on. Do you um is is there something is there something that I'm going to miss uh by getting by sort of maximizing my privacy and getting rid of um Alexa are there things that say uh Urbit can't do because it isn't going to scrape massive amounts of data um yeah from people I think I think recommender systems are something that get a bit harder to do when you don't use massive amounts of data. Um, I think, you know, I was just talking to someone the other day about like recommender systems, say something like Netflix and people are, are basically, oh, I hate Netflix recommendations now, right? They don't, they don't get me the things that I want. But part of the reason why is because of actual content licensing issues rather than their ability to target what you might enjoy watching. And so the things that are available on Netflix streaming are narrower and narrower because everybody has an OT like an over the top video service nowadays. So, so you're saying it's a massive piracy. <laughs> uh, well I always favorite. advocated I always advocated that. <laughs> so Excellent. Um, okay. um but yeah I mean like this is the reason why people like jailbreak their their fire sticks and then put I am blanking on the name of the the software, but basically it's like it was called popcorn for a while and it's it's essentially torrent but it's for like live streaming right is once you get into that realm uh, their recommendation services leave something to be desired but but i think that's part of what i would say is 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 this issue is it's there are there are going to be actual cases where it's more about the limitation of the business model than it is the technology now i do want to make a distinction though in the sense that there are things that are very hard to discern based on context um, or without fully understanding the context or the norms of play. And so my favorite story about this is that during the Netflix challenge, right, which was uh, they were willing to pay out a million dollars to whatever team could increase their, uh, their recommendation um, engines, like uh, accuracy by like 10%, I think it was. And one of the hardest problems that they dealt with was what they called the Napoleon dynamite problem. And what that meant was that, they had a very hard time discerning based on your watching habits whether you would want to watch Napoleon Dynamite or not. And it was almost like a 50-50 type of case. <laughs> and the reason why is because I think like – have you have both of you watched this movie or um, – Yes. So yeah, I, some people I, love I it. I guess wildly <laughs> – yeah, wildly popular but maybe uh, – Well, I Go make yourself some quesadillas. Yeah. <laughs> like it was it was a moment in time right like it's like i, I was talking it was about a friends, vibe like, it was a like, vibe it was a vibe right it was a time for like what mid 2000s right it was like post slapstick right and because like when was the last time a slapstick movie was made it was probably brain donors was the last slapstick movie that i think i ever really watched and so anyways i, I people either loved it or hated it it was popular in some ways but it was also like something where a lot of people watched and they're like why did i watch that movie and so what I would argue here is that there's always going to be these like outliers that exist and, and we should be embracing those and we should be like, I think this is where the machine learning world is still trying to figure out how they do a better job of like understanding confidence in these algorithms and when should a human disagree or not. And there's, there's a lot of interesting research into kind of one of the problems um, that comes up is that people are o like overly sure that the technology is right um, and they have very high expectations and the machine fails in a way that is probably 
I guess, you know, you, you would assume it should fail in these particular cases, but they don't do a good job of creating the right interfaces around it. And so, like, at a certain point, like, Netflix should probably just have a stream, which is like, we have no idea, <laughs> you know, maybe you'll like these movies. Like, here's a long shot, right? Um, but I, I, th- I think that's where one of the things you'll you'll miss about these, like, not being connected to large services is that type of thing. Um, I do think it gets... But I, I think that's a problem, right? Is like, again, if you have like your perfect movie library, uh, you know, ripped to your local drive, um, it's not going to do a good job of doing that because it doesn't have access to those types of things. Um, and then I, I, you know, I think there's recommender services, like recommend recommendation services are a very, very interesting subject because, um, you know, there was always this dream where you'd have like everybody giving each other recommendations. But the truth is, is like, there's some people I trust for certain domains and others that I don't. Right. <laughs> um, there's also like a weird end state that starts to happen. Like if you love everything that you do, um, how do you know what is good? And so yeah. like you should go to a shitty restaurant every now and then. And actually I, I, I feel like I've like achieved some type of like Nirvana inner peace where I go to like a really bad restaurant now and I'm like, this is that restaurant. that's going to make me really, really enjoy the next time I go to a great place. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I, I have to say something about uh, about uh, recommendation yeah. engines, um, which you know maybe this this is not really relevant, but I've never said it before. But the the thing that bothers me about um, recommendation engines is that I so let's take YouTube for for an example. Yeah. When I die, I want my grandchildren to look at my because i assume that this is going to happen i assume that i'll be sufficiently famous that people are going to comb through my uh, built the archives of your youtube watch list right right. and they're gonna they're gonna say i too want to be as great a man as um, hapsel rigner was so what do i need to do and they're gonna look start looking through my youtube recommendations and they're going to see um you know like massive amounts of of um Minecraft. They're gonna see. Um, they're gonna see that I broke down and watched an interview with Jennifer Lawrence on um, Conan, right? And these are not the things that I want them to say. I want them to see that I was watching, um, uh, you know, a stage version of the The Tempest or something like that, right? Um, yeah. And so the problem with the recommendation engine is that. Yeah, what it has figured out about me, what it has learned about me is that I will click on the Jennifer Lawrence interview. And so it gives me more Jennifer Lawrence interviews. But what it doesn't know about me is that I consider that my worst self. And I don't want my my recommendation engine like like giving me chocolate, basically, uh, all for breakfast. And that's what yeah. it's doing. It's, yeah. Well, I, I, go ahead. No, that's that. It, that was that was a kind of a, an off-topic or slightly tangential rant about recommendations, which is that which is that you know there are things that you like. You you enjoy your your morning constitutional is what I'll call it, right? Yeah. Uh, your your uh, I, I don't use that in the walking sense. I use that in the the toilet sense. Uh, which is well, that was, that was <laughs> it's it's a it's a pl- you know it's a it's an animal pleasure that you don't necessarily want to talk about with other people or have them have you know that that's that's a, a it's the lowest it's the lowest common denominator of 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 human pleasure 
And yeah. you don't you don't want your recommendation engine, you know, saying, "Hi, you enjoyed that. Here's 50 more of those things that are low and and base about you that we're now going to share with you." Uh, well, this is my this is my beef with YouTube. No, no, but I, I mean, I think what you're talking about in the like the recommendation world is really about this like idea of in, like um, explicit versus implicit uh, signals for whether you should be interested in something or you are interested in something. And so this is one of the reasons why like Netflix stopped looking at stars um, that you rate things is because what mattered way more was whether you watched it through a certain point. And they have these different, I can't remember the exact points, but it was like, if you watch more than X percentage of this, right, you watched it. And and so right. they'll use that as an implicit signal that you actually enjoy that content. And YouTube probably does the same thing. Wasn't there also, I mean, I think one of the interesting thing here, and this maybe gets us a little bit off piste, but the, um, I think like Amy Schumer, wasn't there like some big thing about like they took away down votes from Netflix for that reason? And then the uh, so, and, and then YouTube has also done this, right? Like you, you get no visibility yeah. into what people think is negative. Well, so the reason why I understand that YouTube took away uh, like downvotes, and I'm not sure about uh, the Netflix thing with Amy Schumer, but it was because people were were brigading to actually cause problems with those people's channels. Is that and is so, that wrong? Uh, not necessarily. So here's what I'd say is that the best thing that you can do if you dislike someone's content is ignore them. And mm. so what the problem was, that's why it's that very important. Do not watch, <laughs> do not watch the Amazon Lord of the Rings. <laughs> well, I, I'm a big fan of like internet comment etiquette. You know, this person on uh, YouTube, anyways, he has like a whole uh, video about this that I, I think he's hilarious. I watch a lot of his stuff, um, but go check out that. <laughs> So he has a whole episode about that. Yeah, but back to what you were saying. So they 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 ignored the stars. This makes sense, of course, because because uh, you know you have your your secret desires is actually what they want to pander to, right? Because they right. they just want you to watch more videos. But that's not what I want. I want my service to make me a better human being. You know. Yeah, but they I don't get paid to do that. I, well, right, which is why I don't want Amazon in my home. I want my Urbit. My Urbit is not trying to is not trying to um, you know make a buck off of me. So what I want my True. Urbit to do is is turn me into a better version of myself. But are you uh, saying I, uh, like every Urbit community is making you a better person? <laughs> every community that I'm a member of <laughs> is making every other member a better person. I will say that. That's for that sure. That is not what Groucho Marx would say. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, no, but I mean, to your point, like, like I get your point, right? And and that's why, you know, um, like you should join like a certain type of like book of the month club, yeah. right? Or you, that's why the idea of like following certain types of influencers, unfortunately, that degrades into this like engagement thing anyways, right? And, and, and that's maybe like, I think a good point is that there aren't a lot of engagement loops inside of Urban. Right. Mm. And so I think you can have that type of thing and that if there's really someone that really like loves a certain thing that you think will make you better. You can go and join that community. Right. You can you can go and follow them and they don't really get much more now. I think like longer term to your point, like you will get things that give you that they'll get the candy and you'll get the the sugar, the raw sugar <laughs> version of things through these services because they basically look at just engagement. And 
um, I mean, this is like a huge question mark inside of the machine learning world, right? Like um, data is inherently biased. When you train a model with that data, it creates biased models. Should we be changing the models to be what we want the world to be, right? Or should we use it as a way to detect bias? Um, or should we just like throw our hands up and say, the world is biased and technology is not? I, I don't think it's the last one. Um, but I think like there's a very interesting question because it's it's like, what do we want to do with this technology is, is more important to me. And, that, and again, it comes back down to human values, right? And And there's lots of different types of human values that are out there. I would just, I would argue that like, we should be able to make that choice and we should be able to say that for this recommendation algorithm, right? Like, yes, I'm okay with getting, you know, one out of every hundred videos at Jennifer Lawrence interview on Conan or whatever, right? But for the other ones, like, you know, I want you to like increase my knowledge <laughs> in this particular domain or in this particular subject. And I, I want to have it in a way that is like not short clip form type of things. And that to me is is interesting. Um, honestly, I, I think like it's 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 a hard battle because I think like a lot of technology is still, you know, again, it's it's trying to give you what you want because of the engagement loop. And so that that would be the thing I think we need to break out of. And and I think reputation and things like that. I mean, you know, I mean, Westworld has t- talks about this all through like season three, right? Is is like all these ideas of of like classifying you as an individual. What what you the systems think you will do and then kind of forcing you down that pathway. And so anyways, I, I think there's more human volition <laughs> in this. And I would argue that I, you know, we, we still need to make choices for ourselves, but I think it can make it, we can make it easier if we were able to like create technology that was, was right for us in some way. I mean, I, I struggle this with like kids stuff, right? Like <clears throat> YouTube for a long time didn't allow me to create an account for under 13 year olds because, and then have it on Apple TV because they only did that through YouTube kids and YouTube Kids was not an app on the Apple TV, on the Apple Store. <clears throat> and so I had to create a fake account essentially for my kids. Problem was that meant that they could get ads. And then it gave them like the full gamut of like stuff. And so I had to go through and like hand block a bunch of channels that were, you know, I don't want them to watch like nonstop toy unboxing videos. And so anyways, like we basically, we just came to the conclusion we can't have them use YouTube. <laughs> and I don't know if you've seen like Elsagate, but there's like a bunch of horrible stuff that that the engagement farm, like yeah, 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 basically through South, you know, Southeast Asia, like content creators creating like these crazy videos with children's characters that are, anyways, it's a crazy, crazy thing. Yeah, I, I people who don't have kids don't even realize that this is a problem because I you get the same thing um, as you walk down the street with kids, yeah. uh, which is to say that you you start getting really frustrated with people who are um, trying to manipulate your kids into getting you to spend money like you know even the, the little machines uh that <laughs> that the kids want to play with outside of stores yeah. and things like that uh exactly. it, it, it's really frustrating to me like advertisement to my kids in the elevator drives me crazy um the well, it's like arcades right like half of the yeah, arcade yeah. is like fun stuff the other half is like ticket gambling. <laughs> and so, yeah. you know, I've, I've, I've tried to instill, you know, in my kids at a very early age, they're like, this is a scam, right? And so there's like an interesting problem that we're going through right now, which is like Pokemon card sets, right? And so for Pokemon cards, like they come in these like foil wrapped things, kind of like, you know, again, I, I was a collector of non-sport cards back in the day. I still have my garbage pail collection somewhere. Mm. Um, like they dealing with this, is it a scam? 
right, for them to get these like randomized mystery boxes, or is it not? And it's it's kind of like on a borderline. I'm, I'm not sure how to talk about that, right? I the ticket gambling machines inside the arcade clearly a scam. Things like arcade machines where they're getting some enjoyment and they're playing something, even though they're still getting tickets, maybe is is okay. But there's like this thing that is like. Anyways, and I had a really good conversation with with like one of them where he was like, you know, actually, I still get enjoyment out of any of these cards, and so I was like, fair, that's that's not a scam then. <laughs> and so, uh, anyways, I, I think this gets back to like, you know, our identities are very much interwoven with the people that we interact with, and we spend a lot of time with our spouses or children, and that means that our identities, when we think about like our identities online, they're affected by that. And, and in real life too, right? Like I'm, I'm not discounting meat space in any way, but like, I think, I think that's why like urban is interesting to me is like, what does this mean? You know, I, I also just wonder like that, the whole concept about giving my urban to someone else eventually, which I, you know, I, I see a lot in the urban community is like, what does that actually mean in some way? Like, is there a memorialized version of like an urban identity? Um, do I just give them my planet and then they take it on and it's like heirloom or, they get a new planet. It's connected. I, I feel like it, has anybody died in the urban community and had to do this yet? Like, I, I just wonder, like, what are the specifics of this? Like in the uh, the probate hearing <laughs> that happens about this, like person's urban community. And I would love I would love for like their urban community then to be like forced to be in this, like, <laughs> like read out loud <laughs> during the uh, the actual like, uh, like, like inheritance thing. I don't know. I just imagine like a really crazy scene around that for some reason. Yeah, I don't. I don't know if anybody has died, literally, uh, <laughs> metaphorically. Sure, I, I have uh, a lot of. People I thought people couldn't get urban. canceled from Urban. Well, I mean, I cancel people all the time. <laughs> people are dead to me on Urban. Um, just, just so you know, in case anybody's listening, you're 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 constantly <laughs> on the watch with me. You know, I'm exactly. always ready. I'm I'm personally canceling people constantly for the wrong opinions. Yeah, I'm a purist. I'm an urban purist. There's, it's, it's, um, speaking of which, there's, uh, well, there's something I, I, I wanted to talk about, which was, um, the, the, uh, I just got into a big fight with the furries, uh, on Twitter. Um, the Mastodon. Which one's the, the, the Christian ones or the non No, this is the, this is the Mastodon set. I don't know if any, do you know, you know Mastodon? I do know what Mastodon is. I'm not on it. Yeah, I'm not either. Well, I mean, of course you're not on it because you're a normal human being. <laughs> uh, right. I, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to give that impression. Uh, no. Well, I mean, when I say normal, I don't mean normie. I just mean you, okay. mentally um, sound. Well, I'm on Urbit, I guess. Yeah, fair, yeah. fair enough. I'm on Urbit. So how you – know, not normie, but not nor like normal. Yeah, but what I'm saying is you're not wearing programmer socks uh, yeah. and looking at um, – I don't know, Japanese cat porn or whatever it is these people do. Uh, yeah, so I mean they, they got angry at me because because I'm a I'm I'm a big defender, but uh the the problem that they seem to have is not understanding that this is what we were talking about earlier about the the this the value of the space. They don't seem to understand that uh putting a financial you know, you know, putting putting yeah. a, a number on how much your urban is worth and increasing that number is is um, actually a good thing. They don't seem to understand that there are these incentives involved, and that uh, it's like you said with the stars. You know, the the fact that a star costs more money that it, it isn't it it isn't a um, you know two or three years ago the stars were not that expensive. 
um, relatively yeah. speaking. When we bought our when we bought our stars, it was actually maybe a bit more and sad because then Bitcoin or whatever we we used to pay for ten x. But um, but yeah, I mean, like the 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 value of the star has gone up because people have put in a tremendous amount of effort in you know engineering but also in you know the reputation of the network and things like that and so this is why this is why you don't this i mean if you want nice things you have to pay for them and one of the nice things that you have on urbit is is that i have no incentive at all to spam people from my planet because um i I like to i fancy that that habsul rignire habsul rignire has you know reputation that would that would be burned. Um, and you just don't, you don't get that from whatever, you know, Macedon furry porn community because it's all free. It's all, it's communist. Uh, it's communism. It's all free. Oh, you're, you're all, you're all, you're all sharing one identity over there. Yeah. It's, you know, it's poly, uh, <laughs> poly relationship community. I'm sure one woman, I mean- one fat woman, 15 skinny guys. I don't know what they do over there. I, I mean, I, I think there's like, there is a value the, the cost of identity is an important thing. Right. Um, I mean, the, the fact that it is valuable to you because of the reputation, I think is an important aspect of this. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I mean, I think there is, there is like an issue though, that, you know, does this become so unmanageable as far as like, you know, there's, Four billion or so, I guess, planets technically, right? And we then start to have to think about like, is it my household that has a planet, and I give moons to everybody, or or the moons, or you know, whatever governance you want to use, right? If you're going to do the Holium thing, right? Um, like, I, I, I think the only part I worry about is I am allergic to these types of like speculative types of things, um, and so I, there's a, there's definitely a happy medium, but I. I think to your point, there is there's like the fact that these reputations or these identities have reputation to human beings and have value. Um, I think is interesting. I do wonder like what happens to an identity? Does it need to be washed or rehabbed as it gets recycled? Right? Yeah, because um, are my grandkids gonna see my Jennifer Lawrence, you know, history? That's right. That's right. And I, I mean, I, I don't know. I, this is something that I don't think we'll be able to tell right now either, right? Like, um, there's the whole concept of just, um, it's referred to as like moral repugnance, right? Which is that, and this started back from the standpoint of, I think, you know, monks being upset about something new that was coming out, right? And, um, we call it the yuck factor, but it's, it's a lot of it ends up being, you know, talking about the technology, you know, society, you know, kind of shapes technology, technology shapes society. There's this constant cycle, like Kevin Kelly would call it the techium. Um, I, th- I would call it emergent behavior, right? Strong emergent behavior and like evolution. And I think, you know, there's something that we don't know how we're going to actually build these technologies in the future, right? And, and I live in a house that's over 100 years old. And, you know, this house is basically trying to tear itself apart, right? Like, there's been so many different people that have lived in here. Um, we are, you know, even at the micro level, and this is where Stuart Brand got things like pace layers from, is constantly moving things around, 
maintaining things, upgrading things in some cases, removing things in others. Um, but, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think for the long arc, it's really hard to tell what the future is going to hold for these types of technologies, um, which is why I think, like, again, like a, a principled stance on how we end up deciding what to build is very valuable. Um, I don't think we'll know what really happens, though, until like an actual urban identity is handed down and we start to see patterns around that. Um, so I, that, that's what I would say is like we, we can speculate definitely and we can try to build things that we think are good for the long term. Um, but I just don't think we know like what is going to happen <laughs> when it comes to that. It seems that your next step is going to be um, actually making something happen in the physical world and, and using yeah. uh, the first step being smart um, bulbs because it's, that's the, I think the most widely used sort of smart device in the home. Yeah. Yeah. What we're thinking about is um, basically uh, the next grant will be uh, essentially a hard coding of Urbit as a hub or controller. Um, and the reason for that is that there's not really a lot of set standards around controlling. Um, it, it tends to be there's like all these fiefdoms like across like Google and Amazon and, and even like third party like, you know, commodity devices <laughs> that are super cheap, like uh, like VSync and all these things, right? Like they all have their kind of controller apps. We have to usually, they'll usually have APIs, um, but they'll they'll also then build bridges into things like Google and Amazon because, or and sometimes Apple smart home because of that. Um, my, my point is that I think the next right step is for us to see like one of the most common things that people have in their home right now are smart light bulbs. <clears throat> Generally those smart light bulbs, like the Philip Hue, which is a very common one has a developer program. There's a third party API that's available. Um, the things that we don't know yet is like how often will people want to have like, their home screen in, in Urbit actually the ability to control uh, smart light bulbs, right? And so uh, the grant proposal that we're prepping right now is basically just to integrate with like at least one smart smart bulb manufacturer to the third party service. So you're still in some way connecting to a third party, um, but doing it in such a way that allows for this light bulb to be controlled by uh, through Urbit. Um, of course, we want to architect it so that, uh, you know, one additional light bulbs could be added, but then it could also be extended to other smart home things. But I think, like, understanding how often people will do this, whether they want to at all. Um, and then I think it's a bit of a proof of concept, right? Like, the, the cases that Urbit is really looking for right now is just to show that Urbit is, like, the, the, the thing about, a, like, Urbit being a real computing platform, right, is that uh, we need to be able to show that there's lots of different uses in general computing use and that it actually fits into people's lives. And so... Um, that's what we're looking to do for the next grant. Of course, the grant after that, I think later this year, um, the CSA, which is like a, a internet's, like a standards group, will release something called Matter, um, which is the ability to basically adopt a spec that allows for controllers and hubs of any device to actually control any device that's Matter compatible. And there's lots of groups that are part of this initiative. Um, the problem is, is that the, the hub controller spec is not publicly available yet. And so I think like the grant after this is to now adapt that um, to matter. And that means that it opens it up to a bunch of different device types automatically. Um, but I think like that's the one request I have to like the urban community, which I, I see both of you as like really, you know, the, the audio mouthpiece <laughs> for that <laughs> is uh, like um, we are looking for like a Hoon developer to partner with on this. Um, again, it's something where I'm fighting as hard as I can to not learn Hoon, but 
um, I am looking for like a developer to work with me. And, you know, I, I'm, I do a lot of stuff around user research, design, product management, those types of things. And so, um, anyways, that's what we're looking to do in this next one. And so I've been, you know, uh, standing outside awkwardly outside of Hoon School and, and kind of like, you know, opening up my van with a bunch of candy inside. I, I haven't gotten a Hoon developer yet, but that's, that's who I'm looking for right now. I'm very excited by this. I want I want to um, be able to control like my entire my entire existence from my urban, and I want it to run all the little machines. You know, the the thing that I dream of doing is uh, we were talking about this offline, which is is uh, not the stuff inside the home. I mean, I'm talking on the physical the physical layer now. The the yeah. stuff the you know the the cool gadgets that you can you can the drone swarm about what the drone swarm yeah that I can kill my enemies with. Um, or friends, you know, whoever wants to die. Uh, but yeah, the, the, um, what we were talking about offline was, was, uh, the ability to, to, or the right to repair. We were talking about that movement. And, yeah. and, uh, I'm, I want to go back home and, uh, like make an urbit test bed. I think it would be so cool if we had, we should, we should have, I'm putting this to the, I know Sarlev is listening to this because he is a religious listener. So Sarlev, I want to create, you know, a farm urbit gadget test bed where I can like, you know, like, wouldn't it be cool if there was a, an urbit farm where you could, you, you know, you could uh, create new gadgets, connect them to your urbit. And then, you know, they're like uh, managing the water supply and the electricity and the, um, you know, uh, taking videos of, of growth and tagging your cattle and things like that. Like the entire, the entire, um, uh, farm and home together in one thing. Cause you know, on urban, there's a lot of these people who are very into sovereignty and, yeah. um, and, and being able to have a, you know, a half acre parcel of, of land, uh, and manage it yourself. I think it would be so cool if the urban community, you know, was like really putting our money where our mouth is and, and maximal for, for maximal self-sovereignty and just letting your yeah. urban do everything. I mean, Pop Rocks talks about this, talk about this a little bit, right? Like um, from the idea of kind of uh, farming and synthesis of data and then the future of that type of thing. And I mean, I, I do think that the value of having a local network with the computing platform like Urbit is is a really exciting and interesting future. Um, and, you know, I, 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 you know, there's a bunch of things that still need to be built around that, but there are primitives, right, that are there, especially around the peer-to-peer. Like Andy. A lot of the stuff. It's what? Like Andy. <laughs> yeah. Like, <clears throat> well, and, and I think the, some of the stuff around peer-to-peer identity, um, like the architecture of Azimuth, for example, um, I think does lend itself to a better way to manage these types of devices. There's a lot of stuff around how you, um, like one of the things we used in some of our workshops uh, is there's a paper that was talking about the life cycle of IoT. And some of the things that are just not thought about yet is kind of how do you ship an IoT device with a uh, Urbit OS that's kind of in, um, I forget what stage it is, but it's like the, the pre-stage. It's like a stage before it actually is like has an identity inside of it. And how you do that, how you do transferring of identities, how you do maintenance of identities, these are all things that need to be figured out, right? And and so, anyways, there's there's a lot to do, but I think that Urbit is a great place to do that because I think before, when it was very DIY around uh, at least home automation and smart home, 
it was all like Zigbee and you had to do a lot of stuff kind of on your own. It's very hard to do. Um, and yeah, so I, I think that's why like the Urbit community, the fact that there's now apps, the fact that they're, they're constantly thinking about how, what are the other peer to peer fundamental kind of objects that need to be there to build better stuff. Um, I think, I think it's the right direction for where you're thinking about going. Um, and farming was one of those things that people came up on the wish list. I think it was like CO2 monitors for interior video, video cameras. It's one of the things that are interesting about like, how do you actually like, what data do you hold on to is another key question that I think a lot of people are wondering about. Right. And this gets back to just, I think in general, like when we talk about blockchain, right? Like what things do you want to be permanently recorded versus not? And where does that get stored? How do you manage those things? When is it available? Um, those are all really key questions that we still need to answer. Cool. I'm, I'm, I'm calling for a, an urbit like physical test bed now, or we're That's actually, cool. We're getting, you know, somebody with a piece of farmland is is getting, you know, we're we're all working on it, uh, writing the code, and then they're actually implementing. Uh, I'm I'm calling Sarlev out, so I'm I'm gonna get that grant. I'm gonna get the grant to to do this on the farmland. And it sounds like a lot. It sounds like a lot of um, people inside of the urban community are also thinking about like physical hardware, right? Yeah. And I think that that is like another place that we need to just figure out because, you know, yes, web hosting is, is fine um, for the uh, like the way that people will communicate with each other. But once we start talking like the physical environment, we need to have like an off offline mode. And so that that says custom hardware of some type. Yeah, well, I know that there are at least at least two companies working on this, one of which is what is it? Next Planet. Did I say that right? Planet. Something like that. I think it's Next Planet or something like that. I I mean I've I've seen the small computing community. They think about this. It's mostly like well, some interesting like in casings and then a lot of like Raspberry Pi type of stuff. But there's there's a lot of different levels when it comes to these types of things. Like I think the part that's going to be interesting is how small should Urbit get, right? Because even even the idea of like embedded systems, I want to inject more restricted. I want to inject it into my bloodstream. Mark of the Beast. I want it. Well, I mean, it's my Urbit, man. It's me. I just want to, you know, like heroin, basically. Okay. Yeah, I want a mainline Urbit. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Into my veins. Right. All right. Um, Andy, you got any any more questions? No, this was... I'm sorry I was late. Well, you should be. You should be. You you are... um, you know, I'm, yourself I'm, I'm breaking the law because I'm not at home and my, we have COVID at home. Oh, nice. I'm going to put that in the recording. And <laughs> Andy's in, in Hong Kong breaking the law because he, he got COVID. Did you get COVID? Uh, no, my, my mother-in-law so far. Uh, glorious. You know, she, I mean, like li- literally she was in bed for a day and then fine. So I, this is, yeah. I'm, I'm unimpressed. <laughs> you were hoping for more. No, I mean, so like, like if you SARS one was much better. Yeah, <laughs> if you're if you're going to break society and ruin my kids' lives, I want to see a little bit more. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't. It didn't even manage to take out your mother-in-law. Right. It's a a, a useless virus. Um. Okay. Thanks. I'm definitely going to keep that in. Uh. 
I never Sounds get around good. to even asking you how to pronounce your how do you pronounce your pet P is it Pillwick or Pillwick? Pillwick. Pillwick no. Fast Tech. Okay. Pillwick Fast Tech. Having Fast Tech is a great pet P for you, by the way. I um, love it. No, it was it was like pure random but very uh, serendipitous. Yeah, that's great. Pillwick, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Now thank you for having me and I, I, I'm excited to see the micro machines that we end up installing Urbanon eventually. Thank you for listening. For more Stack, follow us on Twitter at Stack underscore podcast. And remember, keep your nose clean and your silver cleaner.